Just before we get going in this episode of the podcast, just a couple of items of business. If you are a long-time or first-time listener to the show, then be sure to subscribe to this podcast on whatever channel that you're listening to. It is the cheapest and easiest way for you to support this podcast and allows us to grow, and it continues to grow through word of mouth from you guys. So if you know someone who would be interested in athlete, well-being, and performance, then this is the podcast for them. So do let them know. You can also follow me on Instagram at Lewis Hatchet. And you can also follow along now on TikTok at Lewis underscore Hatchet. If you're also able to leave a review for this podcast over on the Apple Store, that would be incredible. I thank you so much. And do screenshot it, send it to me over on Instagram at Lewis Hatchet and share it with us so that I can personally thank you for those reviews. So thank you if you've already done it so far. And thank you if you're going to do it today. Welcome to the Raising Your Game podcast, a show where I bring to you the stories, insights, and ideas from the world of sport to help improve your well-being and performance, both body and mind. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Lewis Hatchett and in this episode I'm joined with world-renowned performance psychologist Jim Lair. I am so excited to have Jim on the podcast. I've been a fan of his work for a long time having read his books and also listened to numerous keynotes, podcasts, videos of him talking about these topics and today we lead on from his most recent book Leading with Character And it is really about what it is to build character as a human being to create a great outlook as an athlete. So we talk about mental toughness, your energy, focusing your energy, the science behind it all, the voice that we have inside our head, training that voice and really discovering purpose and meaning behind what you do and leaving essentially your legacy on the world through building character So Jim is a thought leader and powerhouse in this landscape and I am so excited to have him on the show. So I'm not going to hesitate any longer and I give you the incredible Jim there. Enjoy. Jim, thank you so much for for joining me today. I uh, I'm really really appreciative of your time, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. You've actually, I guess, if anything, I'd actually like to thank you to start with because I've I've actually just started a performance psychology master's degree, and that oh, you, fantastic through listening to some of your work, it was it definitely pushed me down a road, or, or not pushed, guided me down a road that made me very curious about this not only through my own experiences in sport but now with the work I want to do with athletes and so yeah thank you for doing that but thank you for being here most importantly um, I, uh, I'm very excited about our opportunity to interact here today and I hope we can create some value for your audience yes I have no doubt that we're going to be able to do that so with, without diving straight into many different areas that you have written about extensively uh, I was actually really curious about where your own personal interest in psychology came about where did that sort of branch from and where was the seed essentially planted for you it's interesting my father was uh, a brilliant um, engineer scientist 
um, and uh, was expecting me to follow in the same footsteps as my, same with my brother and my sister. And, uh, but I had an undergraduate psychology instructor that really captured my imagination. And my father, I think, was very disappointed that I didn't go into some area of science that he felt was real. He thought psychology was fluff. And uh, so I went on and uh, specialized in, I got my master's and doctorate in, in uh, psychology, specializing in community mental health, and very quickly uh, received an opportunity to become chief psychologist and executive director of a very large community mental health center system that served the whole central and southern part of Colorado. And we had 8,600 square mile catchment area, nine offices. It was a big job, big area. That's what I thought I would be doing for the rest of my career. That's what I was kind of trained to do. And I met an exercise physiologist by the name of Dr. Joe Vigil, who is a legend in the Olympics for producing track and field superstars. And he and I became very good friends. Uh, he got me running and he kept asking me the same question. He said, Jim, of all that you know about psychology, what can I tell my athletes to get more out of them, to get them to perform better? And I would look at him uh, like a deer in headlights um, because I had no idea. I said, Joe, I have no clue because I, I can help people who are not well get healthier. That's what I've looked at, but I don't know how to take normal people and make them extraordinary. I have no clue. And he said, this was in the seventies. And, and he said, you know, you ought to get involved, but you're kind of a, pioneer, you always like to do new things. Why don't you, uh, why don't you start pursuing that? So I got involved and the more I got involved, the more excited I became. And then eventually I resigned to a 23 member board of directors and, uh, and went on and set up a center for athletic excellence in Denver and began the whole career. Um, and I think my father would be very happy with the way I've approached it, because it's been, I've really tried to have one foot in the practical world and one foot in the research world. And uh, I'm pretty much devoted to doing something that is, is uh, you know, uh, pretty, pretty established in terms of its ability to be tied to research findings and things that we know are real. So it's a, uh, I kind of got into the performance psychology field by accident and then in, ended up uh, with Dr. Jack Roppel, who had his PhD in bioengineering. We started the Human Performance Institute uh, in 1992 and probably to date some 400,000 people have gone through that. I'm a data guy, I love data, I love big data sets looking for data trends. And that was a living laboratory that had no equal. I was at the Nick Bollettieri Tennis Academy for six years, set up my research institute there before starting the company. And I had 240 young superstars, Andre Agassi, Jim Courier, Monica Sellis, an unbelievable group of people to, I, I, I'm a measurement guy. I was measuring everything I could every day. And after doing that and a lot of other personal research, I, um, I launched with Jack Roppel this institute and we sold it to Johnson & Johnson in 2008. 
and I stayed on another six years. And now I'm applying what we learned at the Institute with that living laboratory to younger people, to youth. And I'm uh, very excited about that as well. But I got there by accident. It's a long answer to a short question, but uh, <laughs> I got there. Uh, it's kind of a crazy, crazy pathway for sure. Well, you mentioned about how much uh, you enjoy the the practicality and the data. And having listened to you and read your work, like I, I would say that I kind of phrased, summed it up by thinking there's where science meets spirituality. That's kind of where I mm-hmm. what I got from it. I, I kind of felt there was this beautiful blend in your work of the and you had said that science minds the truth, and that is a brilliant phrase that I've heard you that I've heard you say. And that for me is is yes, there's so many nuances within the world of psychology, and it isn't just black and white all the time. But there are some areas where science can really just. And what I'm learning now as well, like you can really back up the work that you want to achieve and and sometimes bring comfort towards towards athletes and performers can really help bring that that comfort, know that that progression is happening and you're going in the right direction or there's a natural impact happening uh, if they sometimes perhaps perceive there isn't one. Because let's face it, a lot of athletes get down in the dumps a lot of time. They're hard on themselves. And yeah. if you can show them those data points where it's getting better or where to improve, then that that science is really just blending with that that kind of I guess an esoteric world that we we can sometimes live in as an athlete. I had a psychology professor say to me, he said he wrote on the board, he said, uh, the mind in attempting to understand itself is faced with a dilemma where the thing, the object to be understood and that which is understanding are of equal complexity which means we only have the mind to understand the mind. And there's so much more that we absolutely do not know. Mm. Very hard to get the science right. And there are a lot of scientific findings that are contradictory to what's been found before. But you're 100% right. Science is the pursuit of truth, the real world. How are things actually happening? And when you get a preponderance of evidence, around a certain idea, whether it's a neurological discovery or understanding where judgment in the brain actually takes place, the understanding of emotions and how it interacts with cognitive processes. You know, the more you have, the better chance you're gonna create practical programs that actually are going to get results. And so, you know, it's a, for me, it's a really, really exciting adventure. I feel very fortunate to have had so many great mentors in my life and the living laboratory with all these i've been fortunate enough to work with 17 number ones in the world and just about every sport and then with military special forces with blue angels precision flying team with anti-terrorists um the fbi hostage rescue i mean all of those were my teachers and I'm a, I'm a student. I love to learn. And to this day, I'm as excited. If you saw my library, if you saw my desk, I am overloaded with new books, new scientific articles. Um, and I will do that until my last day because for me, uh, we are all in search of truth. And then we have to kind of, if we can only do what science tells us, we couldn't do a whole lot. Then we have to be brave enough to take and really have the integrity to take what we've learned and pretty much know as solid science and then 
boldly move into something that's practical. And that's always a little bit of a hazard because you're always going beyond what the data indicates. And then you go out and you try it, you see if it works, and then you try again. So it's a, it's a Rubik's Cube that has no end. Yeah, I think that's even from the performers having been on the receiving end as, a, as an athlete myself. It's, it is the same journey at the same time. So the whole trial and error and test yes. and, and try and, and there's no one size fits all, I think. I, I personally got caught up with so I'm a big fan of role models like if you if you really want to live a charactered life or then find those people that you want to emulate and take what is best from them and 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 try to live as close to that as you can in your own way but I guess I sometimes got caught up with trying to live too much like some of those role models and trying to to think that what worked for them was definitely going to work for me. And when I didn't mm. have success in it, it didn't work for me. And I couldn't figure out why, because I'm trying to be like them. And and then actually realizing, well, that is a part of my own journey as an athlete should have been more highlighted, whether it's introspectively or, or, or an external source telling me that that's okay to be experiencing that, but try this, try that, and be a bit more open to the idea of trying new things, to trying different ways and and then eventually you come up with this beautiful palette of things that are working for you Mm -hmm. yeah each human being is completely 100 percent unique Mm. that the 30 trillion cells that make up the human body and they keep adjusting that at once at one point it was 10 trillion now they're up to 30 trillion cells individual cells and how all of that comes together is a quite a, a marvelous, miraculous thing. But you are one of a kind, will always be one of a kind. And it is always fantastic to have living evidence of somebody that's getting it right, of actually understanding that it is possible to live a life of true meaning, a life of, you know, um, almost um, bigger, transcendent uh, in the sense of more than yourself. And you really watch these people throughout their lives, how they treat their children, their marriages, how they treat others over a span of time, a long period of time. You become pretty much convinced that you would like to be like that, but that's a role model. But then again, you have to find your own path because your journey is different your talent base is different, your interests are a little different, but uh, it's so great to have people. Um, I had lunch yesterday with one of the greatest basketball coaches in probably basketball history. And I was stunned when I heard that how his whole life would would be a success if he was compared to, to another coach that he thought was actually superior to him and that he hoped that that might be his legacy that this coach actually recognized him as being a valued coach in this sport. So we're all looking for role models and we're all looking for our own path to have a successful life. And you can't copy someone else, but you can emulate them in many ways and helps you on your journey. What would you say to someone that is perhaps striving too much for that 
whether it's a projection of who they want to be or an outcome that they want to create um, and perhaps not living too much in the moment what sort of tips and advice would you give for someone that is is perhaps striving too much on that external that that vision too far in the future and not focusing on right now well i I really feel that you know all the 30 trillion cells in your body have a purpose um it's it's a miraculous thing that every single cell has a blueprint um this union um, as a fertilized egg within the w- womb of the female, that fertilized egg, that nucleus of that cell, contains the blueprint for the entire body. And every single cell, every 30 billion, I mean, 30 trillion, has a purpose. This one makes nose, ears, fascia, brain cells, all the rest. And it's all precise. So we come into the world. And we are suddenly confronted with this notion that we don't have a purpose. So the first step I have people do is to begin to reflect, to begin to reflect very dear, very deeply on what do they want to do with their life, and to really go into what I call reflective consciousness. It's the it's the evolutionary upgrade that no other species has the ability to do, and that is to self-determine what you want to do with your life. And it has to be your life. You can't copy someone else's life. And then, so you begin to articulate the life you want to live and you watch others, you watch your parents, you watch people who crash and burn, but you take responsibility for the direction that your life takes. You didn't have a whole lot of control over whether or not you were born, you just showed up. You didn't have any control over what parents you had. You don't have any control over your skin color or eye color or how much genetic giftedness you have as an athlete or is in music or anything else. All of that was determined for you. But the one thing you do have, which is for me, for me the most important area of choice is to what are you going to do with this gift that you received? What are you going to do with this life? And you're only here for a short time. So I always have you go to the end of your life. You kind of go to the end and work forward. And then begin to do the things that will help you. I call it getting home. Once you understand how to, what home is for you in life, then the rest of your life you're trying to get home. And home is simply ending up where you want at the end of your life and start there and really push the envelope hard. And it's interesting what bubbles up there. And that process never ends. You will continue to, that's your true north. And that true north will never be set in cement. Every day, every week, every month, every year, you get a little clearer picture of your purpose, your reason for being here, and the rules of your engagement on planet Earth. How do you want to treat others? What are your ethics? What are the morals that matter to you? And uh, out of that, you you know, you bring the best of a lot of people in your life. But clearly, this is your life, your legacy, and the way you choose to uh, to bring it to some kind of 
brilliant conclusion on your terms. I, I believe that one of the tools that or exercises that you recommend is the the tombstone the eight words on your tombstone mm -hmm. so, so this is similar to what you were taught this is pretty much what we're talking about is exactly i, I call it the hidden scorecard uh we're all basically we have society's scorecard which is mostly extrinsic markers of success fame money all the accolades trophies titles it's your resume and working with 17 number ones, they couldn't be better. They were the best on the entire planet. And so many of them were, after a very short time, after winning another Olympic medal, were quite unsettled, didn't feel fulfilled. They were kind of, they felt cheated that their whole life, this is what they've been working for. And this is all it is. I have this medal and it doesn't really, doesn't fulfill me now. Maybe I have to do it again. Maybe it was luck. Maybe I need four gold medals, then I'll feel better. And they keep looking. And so we looked much deeper. We began to realize that all of us have a different scorecard. And we're not really aware of it. But it's connected to how our ancestors survived. And when food and, sh and, and shelter was scarce, those that bound together and connected to other human beings in a very, very profound way were the ones who survived. And those who went off and did their own thing and were extremely kind of independent apart from others, they just didn't make it. They didn't make the cut. They didn't make it till Tuesday because when you are out of food or you're, you know, you're sick and you can't really go out and find forage for food, someone has to come to you and help you. So um, what we found, there's another scorecard and it really is the treatment of others. And we really came to that in a variety of ways. And one of them was the tombstone exercise where we asked people to go to the end of their life and to put on the tombstone, the way in which they want to be remembered more than anything. What is the ultimate standard of a successful life for them? What, what must happen for them to qualify as having a successful life and really push them hard to do that? And um, so it could be six or eight words or it could be a couple sentences. It could be, but they are to reflect on that tombstone, carved in stone, chiseled in stone, the actual um, criteria that they will use for the rest of their life for being a success. And then we move forward from that um, in our lives that we, we try to figure out how do we end up there? What do we have to do? And on that scorecard, we did this with thousands of people at the Institute and everyone was stunned. If I read them out loud or if I had them come up and read them in front of the group, they all were shocked because they were so similar. And it was almost as if they copied from one another. And what we began to realize that there's something going on. No one put up there, I need five gold medals. I need to make $10 million before I die. I need to have the office. Uh, I need to be a CEO of this company. On Noticeably absent were all of those things. What mattered were things like integrity and honesty, a caring, loving father or mother an inspiration to everyone who knew them. Someone who deeply 
cared about the world and every day did things to to uh, really evidence that that was in fact who they were. I mean, it goes on and on, but they're all connected to other people. And so I'm a I'm a performance psychologist. I started the Human Performance Institute, and we are in the business of helping people achieve great things. How I ended up in that space was a complete shock to me as well. Getting ending up in character, man, I'll tell you how we got there, because all the data continued to lead us there. Mm. That ultimately, the highest level of health in a human being is what we call character health. And sustained success, you can get to the top of the mountain by walking over dead bodies and not treating people very well. If you're a talented athlete, you can do amazing things. But you're not going to be that fulfilled. And your ability to stay at the top of the mountain, people don't want you to be there because you haven't really built relationships. You're not grateful. You're not humble. You're not trustworthy. It's all about you, your obsession, almost this narcissistic obsession to be at the top of the pyramid actually is not very satisfying for those around you. And they cease to want to support you. And so uh, there is something about being, you know, famous, but so many famous athletes have tried to get disguises. So they, they think being famous is actually a curse. They wish people didn't know who they were because they have no life. So it's a really, it was very interesting. And so what, what we concluded, and that was the reason for leading with character in my previous book, The Only Way to Win. The only way to win is to win with character. And the only way to lose is to lose with character. Because you will have a life and you'll feel great about yourself. And the hidden scorecard, you will get high marks. And uh, then the last book, Leading with Character, an accompanying um, journal, um, is really to help you understand at a much deeper level how to own your life, how not to let your life and your standard for success be someone else's standard, and to really go in and do the hard work that's required to build what I call your personal credo, a statement about what are going to be, what are the guidelines for you living a successful life? What are the things that matter most to you in your value structure, in your beliefs, and uh, Let's make it yours. Let's don't copy your parents or anyone else's. You can take the best if you want, but they've got to be yours. You have to own them. And the way you own them is you live them in the reality of your life. Mm. Yeah, wow. I I kind of want to put a, a pin in and, and a, a holding pin on the leading with characters. I do want to come back to it. And I almost want to go right back to, and correct me if I'm wrong, which may be one of your first books, um, Mental Toughness Training for Sports. Right. I, was it one of your first books? Was it? Was it? The yes, first it was. Um, I, it was uh, Mental Toughness Training for Sports was the first book that I published. Yeah. Uh, and that was published, um, my first rendition of that was um, 1980. And so it was a long time ago, and I submitted it to 19 publishers, and all 19 rejected it immediately. So that's the goofiest idea. The notion of mental toughness did not even exist. They go, what the world is mental toughness? And then um, my father 
who got involved, who was a professional athlete before he became an engineer and did all his work there. Um, he really liked the book. And so he published, he, he, he allowed it to be published. He paid for it to, he published, uh, produced 5,000 copies. And within a, almost a heartbeat, it became um, one of the most popular books in sport. And it kind of became a bestseller picked up by a major publisher. And it was, it's become now kind of a classic. I just got on, you know, Amazon sometimes sends you books that are around here. They sent me that book. I said, I might be interested in it. And uh, <laughs> that's funny. I'm the author. And uh, it's the green uh, metal toughness training for sport. And uh, because it was an original, it, it was for sale for $806. Whoa. Because you can't get it. It is unavailable. But um, I thought it was funny. A book that, and it sold forever. And a book that no one would even have any interest in actually reflected all the work that I had done up to that point. And I did a kind of a scientific approach to it. And uh, that was the beginning of my career. That, so for me, it was really interesting. If you do look at your books from almost beginning to the, the, the most recent one <laughs> where you've started at mental toughness and then now really leading uh, and now leading with character and this kind of blend as it's, as it's moved on over time. But one thing I'm kind of really interested in, and obviously science changes, um, our outlook on psychology, mental health in sport is, is different and, and obviously very highlighted in the... Uh, Olympics this year with people like Simone yes. Bars. What I'm interested in knowing is whether you have found there to be some real core areas that perhaps came from the Mental Toughness book that have stood the test of time that you find are almost really hard ingrained into into an athlete psyche. So I did interviews with hundreds of athletes over 22 different sports to produce that book. And I asked them to describe what was the feelings they had, the descriptors they would use when they were performing at their best. And over and over, whether it was professional football or soccer or whether it was tennis or golf or wrestling or, I mean, every sport imaginable, boxing, the same words kept reappearing. And um, what I began to realize, some of the words described a mental state, calm, focused. Others reflected an emotional state, very relaxed, um, a, a sense of high energy, but very relaxed, intense, without tension. And then there were a, a big emotional component, like positive, um, and optimistic, confident. Um, there was a, a very interesting blend of mental, emotional, and physical qualities of this particular state I came to call the ideal performance state. It later was crystallized by this Chick Chang Chick Mahele in the, um, in the whole notion of flow. What, what I was learning was, in a sense, the flow state. And the centerpiece of that was the ability to have fun when you're performing under pressure. And the more fun you have, the more all these lights would go on. You'd be relaxed, calm, focused, energized, engaged. 
And then when Mahaley did his work at the University of Chicago, he began to, you know, he authored over, I don't know how many, over 200 articles and 14 books and spawned an enormous amount of research. And I could relate to it because that's exactly where I was in my work with athletes, the understanding what I called an ideal performance state and what he came to call the flow state. Mm. And so I, almost everything I came to because um, I kind of wasn't just out of my head. It was an evolutionary picture of how science was emerging. I haven't had to really take anything back. Um, it's been a, an evolutionary journey. And all it shows is that the onion skin is continuing to be get peeled back. We get a better understanding. So I think I understand um, more obviously now than I ever have. And I couldn't have gotten here without all the things that I had to go through to get there. And so I'm hoping that I can help people jumpstart, not have to go through all the things I did to get here. But uh, some of these are, are really fundamental in who we are as human beings. And I, I had to I have to bite my lip a little bit because mental toughness is not just mental. It's mental, it's emotional, it's fear, it's physical, and it's also spiritual. The sense of purpose and character is a big part of it. So I've had to expand even the name. I, I had a book called Toughness Training for Life. And that's where I began to realize that toughness is not just mental. It's not just a way of thinking, but it cuts across the entire spectrum. We're an integrated, fully integrated system, energy system, that every piece of it is connected to every other piece. And when you tweak one, you tweak them all. And if you want to have outstanding performance, you've got to make sure they're all in harmony with the mission. I, I think I was interested also to find out with your work that you're doing with young athletes now, perhaps some of the barriers that you face uh, on a regular basis or you 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 see now because there is a i can't deny that there is a, a shift in mentality with with young athletes right. from even from I'm, I, I'm 31 now and i think just back to when i was 15 and it was it was so different there is obviously the evolution of media social media the internet it's, it's just exploded have you have you seen some some real barriers for what you believe are hindering the development of whether it's mental toughness mental skills the emotional spiritual skills that the athletes you believe require there has been a quantum shift in how people are experiencing life today as opposed to even 10 years ago and particularly with youth and the pandemic has accelerated this the amount of time they're spending on screens mm. And the amount of physical activity they're getting, they can't go outside, they can't, you know, their only connection with others is electronically and digitally. And it really has really compromised a normal development as we have come to understand what health is for a young boy or girl growing up. Taking sports away from them, there are some sports they could continue to play, but for the most part, they were shut-ins. Parents were not able to 
a lot of stress in the family. And so they increasingly went to screen time to be entertained in school over uh, online schooling and stuff because it was so new. They weren't that creative. It was very boring. And yet they were held accountable for their grades. I've seen so many young people struggling, just trying to transition from, you know, the world that they were in prior to the pandemic in the world now. And hopefully the pandemic and their ability to live a little bit more normal life, but it has absolutely compromised a lot of the natural progressions that you see in healthy development. And a lot of the notions about toughness, uh, about trophies for everyone, never wanting to hurt anyone's feeling, don't push people too hard. I'm a big safety proponent. I love the idea of making athletes safe, but I'm also a big proponent that if athletes do not push the envelope, if you don't push them outside their comfort zone, they never grow. The beauty of sport is that it is a compressed version of life. And if they learn to deal with the losses, with getting along, with interacting with team members, with uh, their own negativity and you know their self-derogatory inner voice and all of these issues can be worked out in sport if you have the right coach and the right understanding of what it's all about. But with the wrong coach and in the wrong hands, this can become just another anvil around the person's neck in trying to understand how to live a successful life. I'm a big proponent of youth sports, but youth sports where, as you have said before, the person first and the athlete second, that who is this developing person and how are they interacting with this sport? Let's make that, and I'm not obviously pushing for the wussification of kids. I'm in the toughness business. I'm gonna to, to expand kids' resilience for life, their ability to bounce back, to handle difficult times. But the, uh, the experience I've had with young athletes and, and myself again has been about the, the voice inside, and I wanted to touch on this because it did come from, um, I've heard you talk about it before, and the, the inner voice, and also the, the idea of the tone of voice that, that you get, the, 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 the stories that we're telling ourselves. And definitely young people are telling themselves multiple different stories at multiple different times, and, and most of them untrue, most of them unkind yeah. and very untimely. And my work is in trying to use mindfulness as a tool to make them understand those stories and listen to them and, and, not, and not necessarily fight them, listen to them so that they can gain that awareness of them. And I, I'd like to for you to touch on, on the, your idea of the, the inner voice and, and being able to hear where it's come from. And also, I know you've touched on where it's inherently come from, the environment in which it may have come from. So if you could, if you could delve into that, that'd be great. I'm in the process right now of writing another book just around this inner voice because it has such enormously important role in everyone's life. And I've spent a lot of time doing work, reviewing literature, trying to understand 
when you go into the lives of athletes, one thing that keeps popping up is this voice that no one else hears, but them. We all have a public voice and that's the voice we use. That's what I'm using now. That's what you're using now. But there's an inner voice, a voice that no one hears but yourself. And that's the voice, I, you know, when I'm speaking, I'm trying to connect with your inner voice. Your inner voice, in a sense, is the key to the kingdom. Some things you allow in, some things you don't. And everyone wants to have access to this central core I call your command center. And, and it is the, the master storyteller and the master controller of everything, including where you put your energy, is your inner voice. And that is the repository of great wisdom or great chaos. And that inner voice begins to get formed very early. There's now evidence it's forming actually prenatally that the auditory cortex of a young child, uh, the way in which a mother or father or siblings are speaking, the tone and the content are actually registering um, in that neurological architecture. And up until the age of five, that thing is becoming a, that voice in your head becomes the amalgamation of all of the inputs that have come up to that point. And suddenly you have your own voice. You hear the voices of others, but you also have your own voice. And what I've had to do with all the athletes, thousands of athletes we work with is try to get that inner voice aligned with their public voice, um, which creates a sense of authenticity and genuineness and sincerity. But more importantly, it actually, it actually is the ultimate, you know, kind of North Star uh, Yoda, if you want to call it, that actually guiding you to uh, on how to get home, on making decisions, and uh, and it is uh, it's a gift, a cherished gift, or it is a calamity. It's a curse, and a lot of people have no idea how how important this is, and sometimes where it came from, but it shows up. And now oftentimes if it's derogatory, you waste so much energy fighting really a battle with yourself in addition to the battle with the external world. And you should be on the same team. That inner voice ultimately is your personal coach. It's the most important coach you will ever have on planet earth. And it's the only coach you will have with you until your last breath. And that coach, should be wise, should be one that if it were projected onto a big screen for the whole world to see, you'd be proud of the way you were coaching yourself. This is the way you would coach a best friend who you deeply cared about that was in the same situation you're in, as opposed to just being this extrinsic critic. You are now on the same side. You're helping coaching yourself make the right decisions. And we found maybe the best way to get that voice right is to script it in longhand with cursive writing in a journal. And we have athletes writing like crazy, scripting in advance how they want their inner voice to coach them in all the situations that have given them trouble. And once we get that, there's a sense of peace 
It's a sense of inner harmony that is almost indescribable. Um, but unfortunately, there are a bunch of people who don't even recognize you have a voice in your head. But that voice is the master controller of everything. And it's the voice that will lead you home if you equip it properly with what your destination is, what your purpose, what your values. If it's not properly equipped and not fully aligned with what you want, it becomes a, a real detriment to your happiness, to your health, and to your ability to achieve great things. Yeah, I, uh, I'm a big proponent of the fact that it, all of that begins with that awareness. It's purely becoming aware of the whole the whole story that's being told, the voice that's that's talking, and then like moving. I think beautifully into journaling which is where the personal credo that that aligns with leading with character that right. cathartic process of of putting pen to paper and 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 actually seeing for because yes you can you can become aware of it but it's still essentially in your in your head it's in your mind but actually seeing what it's saying and having that process of of writing it down that is a powerful one and that i think is a is is it one to encourage athletes if if they're having that inner I don't want to say turmoil is a is too maybe too strong a word but that conflict within their brain or putting it down just putting it down on paper you see it for what it is you see the reality you take the sting out of it for sure yeah it's uh in a real sense what you're doing is you're training your inner voice to be a, an unbelievably effective coach and that just doesn't happen, particularly if you have a, a voice that you don't even know where it came from. It just shows up. And, uh, and some, some of the greatest gift is that you may have gotten a great inner voice, and that's fantastic. You can make it better. But if it's creating a lot of chaos and it's always caustic, negative, beating you up, never saying you know, anything that, you know, might represent a, a positive statement about who you are and your value and your dignity or anything like that. I mean, this voice can be tough. It can be strong. It can be, um, you know, a, a little impatient with you. It's just the way a great coach speaks to someone they care about. I mean, it, it can be all those things. But what it's never doing is tearing a person down and beating them up. Uh, just for the sake of uh, having a superior position. And the power the power broker in your life is your inner voice. And it is, there, there is no equal in terms of the way in which this power broker can lead you astray to make bad decisions and bad choices or take you in the direction you ultimately want to go in life and make you really understand what life is all about it will come through that inner voice if if there's somewhere that someone is trying to maybe begin their journey of of un, you could say understanding their character or developing their character um and, and building their character yes where where would you think is the best beginning exercise or place um or, or story you've got getting would it be would it be going to that inner voice listening to that first would it be 
going to your training and looking at what you've done so far, what's worked well, where would you send someone to to develop first? The book Leading with Character really um, takes a look at exactly that process. Um, and I, I look at the muscles of the physical body. We have, you know, um, all the muscles labeled and they all have to be in sync with each other. They all are a healthy person. You have to develop all the musculature of the body. And I believe the same thing is true in terms of character, that these are muscles that have to be developed. If you want to have a, a strong bicep or tricep, you have to make sure that you're investing sufficient energy in those through weightlifting or whatever, you have to make energy investments to grow those capabilities, those assets. And the same thing is true with kindness, mm-hmm. with honesty, with integrity. These are muscles that have to be built. And you don't, you don't inherit kindness. You don't inherit um, truthfulness. You acquire that. Humility, generosity, the ability to love, to care for others. Those are assets that connect you to other people in some dynamic way. And if those are important to you, you simply have to understand how to build them and leading with character. Every single, there's 50 character strengths and each one is defined first what it is, then how do you develop it in yourself how do you develop it in your children? And then how do you develop it to those that you're leading in a, in a business situation? And we spent, it was a very long process. You know, it took 10 years in the making of that and two intensive years of putting all the data together into that book. So um, I really believe the more people understand your character is something you build, it's not a given. And that if you want it, you can have it, but you're going to have to do the heavy lifting. And heavy lifting is making energy investments that could have gone somewhere else. So every time you do a kindness meditation, every time you show kindness to someone, to, to another individual, you are investing in that capacity yourself, and it tends to grow. What you invest your energy in spawns life, spawns growth. If you want it, and if you don't put energy into your bicep, eventually you'll lose it. The same thing is true with all the muscles of character. And you need them all, some more than others, and some of them will be represented on your tombstone. And those are the ones you have to have kind of a magnificent obsession. Every day you're investing in it. You want to be thought of as a very generous, very caring person. Well, you better get to work because that's not given. You're going to have to earn that. And if you have that at the end of your life, you can say, yeah, I worked hard to get there. If you, if you give a lot of energy to impatience, to cynicism, to sarcasm, to uh, you know, scapegoating, to rationalizing, those muscles, those capacities, those assets, if you want to call them assets, will become enormous. You could become known as the most impatient person on planet Earth because you allowed your energy to go there. But if you want to have a big patience muscle, that's taking your energy upstream. You have to go against the current and make those investments. You probably have 50 opportunities to build your impatience muscle today, particularly if you're in traffic. Um, 
And you have to look for opportunities to build patience with your children, with yourself, with uh, people you're interacting with on teams or at work. So it's a very conscious effort, but you're, if you have a big cache of energy, you become an investor. You can decide what you want to invest in. You're like a gardener. You can decide whatever you want to grow in life. All you have to do is make energy investments repeatedly and that growth will take place. So if you have it, congratulations. If you don't have it, it means you didn't invest the energy. Simple as that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm um, really cautious of your time and I, and I just want to wrap up with a couple of things. You'd, you mentioned there about putting your energy into something and you have spoken about energy being your most valuable asset over time. Now, some people will probably attribute putting time to something like character building, whether it's a training exercise or, and there is an element of, yes, you can, you can, you do need acquired to acquire a certain amount of hours for mastery of a skill. But there's also true now for sure is, is the ability to, to pull back from the time that you're spending on something and really have harnessed focus on what you're doing and there's, there's no point going into anything if it's just aimlessly aiming at something and, and trying to work at something without real true depth and focus into what you're doing so your 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 phrase that you, i've heard you say of, of energy being your most valuable asset this is what you're meaning by that this is what you're you're really getting to is, is where you're supporting yeah, that energy there's a tragic misconception and the misconception is that we will have very successful lives if we just devote time to the causes and things we care most about. Just devote time. Time has no valence, has no power, has no force. You can spend hours with your kids at home, four hours, and you gave yourself big kudos. But when I looked at your energy, if the mission was to help them feel like you really cared about them, you actually got a reverse return for the investment. You were on your cell phone, you were watching TV, you treated them rather casually. There was no real sense of connection. So we, we really believe we give ourselves great credit when we invest time, but time without energy investment, it's the fusion of time and energy that makes everything happen. Mm. The time management industry, which was a billion dollar, billion dollar industry was founded on a false premise. You know, then they tried to develop this notion of quality time. Time does not have quality. Energy has quality. It has focus, intensity, quality, and 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 uh, quantity. And so, um, I I really believe that it's not how long someone lives, but it's the energy you bring to the time that you had, aligned with what mattered most to you. That's a successful life. And so we have to be very careful about just our obsession with investing time. We have a time management system. But if you don't intersect that with, with the right energy, it's all meaningless. Showing up is not going to get the job done. Showing up with your full and best energy, focused energy investment, is what makes things happen. Yeah. What a um, brilliant place to to wrap it up and um jim look i i really appreciate your time um i will send everyone very much towards your website towards the books that i an, an 
especially leading with character. This has been a book that I've thoroughly enjoyed myself. Um, be- before we go, is there a is there a, a a mantra that you perhaps live by, or perhaps not bestow onto your athletes that you find has been helpful for you in in whether it's grounding yourself in who you are in the moment or, or who they are who they are in the moment if you ever do you use mantras in that way well you know the one that i have i think i use more than anything with myself and with everybody i'm working with is just get better get better physically emotionally mentally and spiritually or character wise i mean just use every day to, to expand your capacity in, the, in every area that matters. And, um, and in doing so, you're going to be more equipped to get home. It's as simple as that. And we love to get better. We love, we love to learn. We love to improve. If all we see in life is we're getting a little less capable of anything, it kind of takes, but you can get better. There are some things that until your last breath, you can continue to improve in one of them. Is in the area of character with no question. Look, Jim, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your your wisdom, your patience for the work that you've done over many years. It's uh, like I said, it's helped me guide me down a route that I'm I'm really excited to go down. This is something that I'm passionate about and helping athletes with themselves. And so, well, so I'm excited you so you're going to go into performance psychology, and uh, I feel. Uh, really good about the time we spent today thank you you're obviously you've read all the materials you know what the whole deal is and uh i sincerely hope our audience uh actually uh, resonated with some of the ideas but thank you for having me on your podcast i really enjoyed it thank you thank you